So Psalm 1, this is out of the NIV. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff, that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Good morning. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. Um, We have dedicated this year to biblical literacy. Uh, Something that we've seen in our culture is that the culture is using the Bible, and they don't even know what it means, but they're using the Bible to attack the church. And the sad thing is that the church doesn't even know what the Bible means. We have a biblically illiterate culture that's using the Bible to attack a biblically illiterate church. And so what we've sought to do this year is to read the Bible, to study the Bible, to know firsthand what it teaches, and in order that our lives would be shaped by the story of God. And I've just been hearing stories from so many of you, like, I never knew this was in the Bible. I had no idea about this character or this thing or God's rescue in this, you know, situation. And yes, the Bible is filled with these amazing stories of God's rescue and redemption. And that's what it's about again and again and again. God's rescue of broken people ultimately culminating in the work of Jesus Christ who came on a rescue mission. And so we've been reading this story uh, individually. We've been discussing this story on Sunday mornings. And uh, right now we're in a current series called The School of Life. And what we've been focusing on is the reality of pain and suffering in life, that uh, life is hard, that we're broken, just like we were talking about, just with uh, mental, emotional health issues. And what we're talking about is how the Bible says that we can live full lives, flourishing lives, even in a world of pain and suffering, even in a world of brokenness, that there is still a richness and we can still have a relationship with God that is real and meaningful and we don't have to live these depressed broken lives. We can actually live the life that God created us to live. So uh, I mentioned a a little bit of this last week when we were talking about this, but um, Harvard had a study a number of years ago. They had a class that they opened up, and it was the largest um, class that they had ever had at Harvard, and the subject of it was happiness, More people registered for this class than ever before in the history of Harvard, and the subject was happiness. And so this is not just uh, a modern obsession, you know, or just an American obsession, you know, how we find life, liberty, and happiness, but this is something that people have been seeking since the dawn of time to find out what the good life is and how do you obtain it. And I think what we're seeing right now is that many people are just living. 
um, I'll share with you guys, there's been, actually, there was a season a couple years ago in, in my life where I felt like all I was doing is I was just, you know, I was like Sisyphus, you know, just like, is that Sisyphus? See the one that rolls a rock up the hill? Yeah. Yes. Yes, I got it. Okay, so, you know, just like rolling this rock up the hill every day. Just do it again, do it again, and just like, okay, well, this is my lot in life, you know, like, life is hard, uh, Things are difficult, and you just can't really expect much more than that, right? Uh, the prophets in the Old Testament, they suffered. The apostles all died horrific death. Jesus Christ was crucified. Okay, like, I, this is just the way life is. And as I was studying in the Psalms, actually, I was reminded of that Psalm that says, I would have lost hope unless I believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And I realized that I was living my life without hope. I was living my life without any expectation. I was just living. And the Bible is not just telling us how we can live an okay life, how we can get by, but it is actually instructing us how we can live a life of goodness, a life of flourishing, a life that regardless of what is thrown at us, what happens to us, we can look over our lives with a sense of contentment, a sense of joy, meaningfulness, and purpose. And the Bible is about this from cover to cover. How do we live well? How do we flourish? It's about the blessed life. And I mentioned this last week. Some people think that there's only a few parts of the Bible that are about that, right? Like, oh, turn to the Proverbs, you know, and read one a day, and your life will just be better because that's wisdom literature. Actually, the whole Bible is wisdom literature. And the message of the Bible is if you come under the apprenticeship of Jesus Christ, and you submit to his word and to his kingship over your life, that you will cultivate yourself a flourishing life. You can make your life like a mini garden of Eden. So much so that when you go out into the culture, when you rub shoulders with your neighbors or with your coworkers or just the brokenness of our world, that the people around you will experience the flourishing that you have. It, it will be this cup of cold water. It will be this bread for the soul. And this is what the Bible envisions again and again and again to train us in wisdom, understanding, and knowledge so that we will become wise ones, so that we will become truly human, a thriving humanity who rule well over God's creation and ones whose lives exhibit the flourishing life of God. So last week, we considered this big idea of biblical wisdom and the great offer from God, right? So what was that? Genesis 1-2, Proverbs connection. The ideal is this, Yahweh the great gardener, the architect of life, offers each of us an apprenticeship under him to train us in wisdom, understanding, and knowledge so that our personal lives will be like a flourishing tree planted by the rivers of water. It will be this Edenic vision. So what we want to do this morning, what we want to do, we all talked, right? What I want to do this morning is I want to walk through Psalm 1. And I want to stop along the way and reflect on it and respond to God. See, uh, the book of Psalms is the songbook of the Jews. 
And it's really interesting. There are five books of Psalms within the book, and they correlate to the five books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the idea was, as you take in God's truth, his Torah, his law, you take it in, but you exhale prayer and praise. And these are supposed to go together. And, and these songs teach us how to pray. They teach us how to respond to God. They show us how honest we can be with God. They teach us not to just talk about God, but to talk to God. And this book is just filled with all of the human situations that we have, you know, just in life. And it's filled with every human emotion. It's just this beautiful, beautiful book. And if you're doing the year of biblical literacy, we're halfway through our second time reading through this book. But the interesting thing about all that I said is Psalm 1 is none of that. So I just wanted to, like, let you know, right? So that's what the book of Psalms is, but Psalm 1 is none of that. So what is Psalm 1? Psalm 1 is an instruction on how to read the Bible. That's what it's all about. And it's this beautiful thing where, you know, the whole book of Psalms is about songs and about prayer and meditation and all this. And Psalm 1 is just an introduction. It's just an an instruction on how you approach this book, how you approach God's word. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to kind of follow this outline. And I hope that maybe you will have uh, some tools to take away with you so that you can do what this psalm says, which is to delight in God's word and to meditate on it, to think it over day and night. Uh, how many of you guys have done inductive Bible study before? Anybody? Yeah, anybody? Yeah, okay, inductive Bible study. Maybe if you come from a more liturgical background, have you ever done Lectio Divina? Anyone? I'm just speaking Latin. Cool, three of us. All right, so that's what this psalm is really all about. That's where both of those ideas uh, come from. They come from this psalm. And the idea of, well, I'll just talk about Lectio Divina for a moment. The idea of Lectio Divina is that you read through a passage and you sit with it. You don't just like blaze through it like, okay, did my Bible reading, but you sit with it. And then you read it again. And then you read it again. And you sit with it. And then you read it again and you think, okay, what, what is the phrase that is standing out to me right now? What, what's the phrase that's grabbing at my heart? I did this recently with a passage in the book of Mark. And the phrase was from the story of Bartimaeus and Jesus. And, you know, the whole story about Jesus going through Jericho and, you know, the crowds are surrounding him. And Bartimaeus has this cry, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And as I was reading, as I was doing Lectio Divina, that was the phrase, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then to stop and say, why is that verse standing out to me? Why is that verse standing out to me right now? What, what, what's significant about that to me? Why is it grabbing at my emotions? And so I begin to start thinking about it. Oh, because I feel like I'm being overlooked by the Lord right now. I feel like everyone's with Jesus, and I'm on the outside, and I've got brokenness, and I've got issues and all this, and I just want a touch from the Lord. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And thinking through this, how has the Lord have mercy on me? How, like Bartimaeus, does he invite me to come and to receive healing from him? So this is what we're supposed to do with the Bible. And unfortunately, what so many of us do is we just blaze through it. And we think, oh, yeah, yeah, I read the Bible before. Yeah, it didn't really do anything for me. And so now I go to these, you know, big hype services, you know, where it's rah, 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 jumpy, jumpy, clappy, 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 and I just get pumped up for God. 
But I don't stop and think deeply about my life. I don't let God's word, the scripture, examine me. And you know what? We have so many people who are Christian, but their lives are unchanged. They have never stopped the bad habits of the past, and they've never begun the good habits of the new family of God. And I think it's because we just are so fast-paced. We don't slow down. We are so quick. We want results. I was actually at a conference this week, and we were in this class talking about this cultural moment and how we were to engage. And uh, the teacher was just talking about these, these four ways in which he sees the church engaging. And, and one person in particular just said, hey, I love everything that you said. And man, I want to take this home and I want to apply it. So, so just tell me how to do that. And the teacher so wisely said, I think that you Americans are way too quick to jump to conclusions and action and I'm actually not going to do that for you, and I'm just going to let you sit with it and let you go to the Lord and work this out for yourself and for your own context. Wow. We don't like that kind of stuff. It's like, no, no, give me the answer. Give me, you know, give me the hard drive, give me, or not the, give me the thumb drive. Let me just plug it in. Let me just play. Let me just take what you have and just do it for myself. You cannot have a relationship with God through another person other than Jesus Christ, right? You can't. That's not the way it works. You have to go to him yourself. You have to go to the source yourself, and I'm belaboring the point, but this is what Psalm 1 tells us and trains us in. So let's walk through this together. Now, I mentioned that the Bible is filled with this idea of flourishing, and that we find that again right here in the, the introduction to the book of Psalms. Flourishing is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, so on and so forth. And so the way the book of Psalms opens is with this pronouncement of blessing, how joyful, how happy how flourishing, some would even say that the, the, the term in English would be how at peace, or maybe even the Hebrew word shalom, this idea of peace on every side are those who, etc. And I think we need to notice the first thing about the biblical idea of flourishing is not that people are zapped by God, but those who hunger after and seek God. We often use the term bless, but what we actually mean is lucky. Right? And this is, a, this, this is not the Hebrew idea of bless, but this is more of an American idea. You know, like, oh, you know, how you doing? Oh, blessed, you know? And what we really mean is graced by God. We're fortunate, and that's a, that's a real thing, and that's, that's a good thing, right? To, to feel blessed, to feel like God is, is just giving favor to our lives. We're in a season where we feel hopeful and encouraged. That's a good thing, but that's not what the Bible's talking about when it uses the word blessed or flourishing. In the, in the Bible, it has the idea of someone who has taken what God has given and has cultivated for themselves, has cultivated over a lifetime, and has then entered into a season of fruitfulness and reaping. Why do I say that? Because I think 
And I know for myself, growing up in the church, I had this idea that what was wrong with me, why I was so broken and stuck in my sin, was because I needed a second baptism. I needed a, a further experience of the Holy Spirit. What I needed was God to just reach down and just zap my brain and reconfigure it, and then I would be okay. And so I go to services, and I just pray this, like, oh, God, change me, change me, change me, change me, change me. But in my day-to-day life, I didn't do anything to change myself, right? I didn't put any of these things into action. I'm just like, okay, yeah, maybe next time it will happen, you know? And then I just go about my merry life, just like doing what I want. I'm miserable, and I'm lost, and, and my life is meaningless. But I find so many in the church doing this. And all day long, God's word, his truth is sitting there waiting for us just to put these things in action. And this is not work salvation. This is Jesus Christ has done everything to redeem us. And he has given us his word that brings life. Now make the effort to walk in that newness of life. And Paul and Peter and all the writers of the New Testament, they talk about this, right? Put off the old nature, put on the new. And this is the idea of flourishing, is that you have continually put to death the old nature and you have continued to put on the new. And so now you've become a kind person. You've become a generous person. It's almost like second nature to you. Where maybe before you were angry, you were quick, you know, just to to make a sarcastic comment to someone. Now your mode of operation is compassion. What has happened to you? You've put to death the old way and you've put on the new and you're being made more and more like God himself. Your life is exhibiting that flourishing life of God. I could go on and we will, but let me move on in the psalm. So the psalms open up in the same way that the book of Proverbs do. Proverbs portrays lady wisdom. Um, Proverbs one twenty. Through 23, right? Lady Wisdom, she's in the town square where everyone is passing by and doing business and going about their lives. And she calls out with this offer of wisdom and flourishing to anyone who will hear. It's very similar to what Jesus says in Revelation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say. Her offer Who wants the good life? Who wants flourishing? Who wants fulfillment? Who wants fullness of life? Then listen and attend your ears. Tune in. And so that's what the psalm is really doing here. Blessed is the one. Who wants blessing? Uh, I do. Who doesn't want blessing? Who doesn't want the good life? Who doesn't want to live life to the fullest and have meaning and purpose, right? So the psalm is really speaking to the desire of every human being on the planet, this vision of flourishing. So here it is. You want flourishing? What does it look like? Well, negatively, it looks like this. This is what he or she, the flourishing one, does not do. So first of all, doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. So walk in the counsel of the wicked. I think that's pretty obvious. Just people who are don't care about God, don't care about um, God's power, God's goodness. They don't care about righteousness. They don't care about justice. Just people that are just here for themselves. 
but does not stand in the way of sinners. Uh, This is kind of lost in translation, but it means to walk in someone's shoes or walking in their way. So just going, like what do we say? Like going with the flow, right? Like our whole culture is going in one direction. I think it's pretty obvious to see that right now. And what the psalm is saying is the righteous person doesn't just go where everyone else is going. Doesn't just give into the MO of culture. And then lastly, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. And the Psalms, uh, this Psalm envisions this complete phase shown in three aspects of departure from God. So, and it does that by portraying conformity to this world at three levels it accepts the world's advice. It's party to its ways, and then it adopts the most fatal of its attitudes. The one who scoffs at God, mocks God's wisdom, his ways, his truth, his power, his love and care, and especially his existence. And this seems to be kind of like step one leads to step two, leads to step three, right? You begin walking in the counsel of the wicked, then you start going their way, and then all of a sudden you have this suspicion of God, this um, attitude of one who is uh, against God and that God is against you. Psalm 10 describes it in this way. The wicked boast of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Now, in in our day and age, it's, it's really no different. You think about from, you know, the new atheist, right? Their message, we can be good without God, religion poisons everything. Or our secular narrative, which just says total autonomy and freedom to choose what we want apart from any religion or authority. Uh, pursue your goals and dreams. Don't let anyone stand in your way. And we could quote, like, numerous Disney songs right now just to prove the point. Um, to the post-Christian narrative, which is the kingdom without the king, this idea that Christianity is offensive. It's not just backwoods you know, or too moral for people anymore, but it's actually become dangerous and immoral. And people don't want to join the church because of that, because of its views of certain lifestyles. And I think for a while now, this is kind of what I've seen. I think for a while now, maybe because of our parents' generation, but my generation, I'm 36 years old, my generation sees culture as kind of a neutral thing. Sees the world as kind of a neutral thing. Like my grandpa, he went to Snow White. It was the only movie he ever saw in his life, and he left halfway through because he was so convicted that he wasn't supposed to be at the theater because that's where the wicked go, right? And like in high school, I'm sneaking out to every single rated R movie I can see because I just want it all. Because I'm like, come on, it's a movie. Like it's not even real. Like this isn't going to affect me, you know? And I think with our, our generation, we've kind of gone back to, um, well, even, I'll give an example. Alcohol is one example, right? My parents are teetotalers, and a lot of their friends are teetotalers. And then my generation, a lot of me and my friends drink. But you know what this has ended up in? Friends going to rehab. 
And so it's like we always are reacting to one and falling off the other side. And I think we, for a while, have seen culture as neutral and harmless, that we can take it in and we can be like the world and we can be with them and, you know, alongside them. And what we have not realized is that we were being colonized the whole time by the world. We were being affected in ways that we had no idea. And this is why, church, because everyone is selling a version of the good life. Everyone, everywhere you go, whether it's the mall and you, you know, you pass by, well, I don't even know what you would pass by in our mall. It's, it's, it's like, you're like, that's it. That's what I, Macy's. It's it. You know, Aeropostale. <gasps> I want to be the Aeropostale girl or whatever. Right. But I mean, truly, right. We, we do this. We see this thing. Oh, I got to have it. If I just have that, I'll just look so fly. And like, you know, everybody will like, like that, man, you just look great this morning or whatever. Right. We do this. You buy the thing. You take it home. You unwrap it. And then you go back to life of doing the dishes, putting your kids to bed, right? Looking in the mirror at your body that is gone, right, from what it was. Like, you go back to reality, and you wake up from this narrative of, you know, if you just have this, you'll have the good life. And it's everywhere, From Hollywood to Silicon Valley to the New York Times to the Washington Post, we're being sold this constantly, a version of the good life of human flourishing. Listen to this from James K. Smith. He says, Christian worship, we should recognize, is essentially a counterformation to those rival liturgies we are often immersed in. Cultural practices that covertly capture our loves and longings, miscalibrating them, orienting us to rival versions of the good life. Your love is a kind of automaticity. That's why we need to be aware of how it is acquired. Our own environment is one that is formative and all too often deformative. And I think this is a problem that we've seen in the church for the last 10 or so years is that we think that we can just go to church on Sundays, that you can live through the message that's taught or the program that we do through small groups or men's and women's fellowship, these kind of things, and that it is going to keep you safe, that it's going to keep you in the fold of God, and you're going to be a thriving human being. Not so, Psalm 1 says. Not so, because we have such a powerful formative culture it's changing us radically changing us and most of us have bought into some version of the good life of flourishing that is not the biblical version of the good life and the biblical version of flourishing and so we need to be reprogrammed paul says by the renewing of our minds we need to be counterformed to this world our culture and its narrative of the good life is not neutral it is anti-Christ, and I don't mean like, you know, Mark of the Beast, right hand, forehead. We're not talking Tim LaHaye, Left Behind series right now, people. We're talking against the way of Jesus. Our culture, maybe years ago, we would see things like self-sacrifice as something to be held up, something to be honored. People that give their lives for a greater cause. Now when we talk about marriage, we talk about it in contractual terms. Oh, I feel this way about you and you feel this way about me and we'll keep feeling this, you know, we'll keep 
We'll be together as long as we feel this way about one another. But as soon as we no longer feel that way and I'm not getting the goods from you at this cost, well, then I'm going to tear up that contract. I'm going to find a new contract. The biblical idea of marriage is covenantal love, faithfulness, no matter the ups and downs, good times and the bad times. And this is something we used to esteem. Our culture is anti-self-sacrifice. It's anti-denial of self. You do you. It's like everybody says that now, and even Christians say that now. And I'm, I, I don't think we mean what everybody else means. God, I, sw- I hope we don't mean what everybody else means. You do you. Just do whatever you want. Whatever feels good, right? But our culture is anti-self-sacrifice, anti-denial of self. And if this is the constant voice in your life, if this is what and who you listen to, if you just binge watch Netflix at the end of your work day and then you get up in the morning and you do it all over again, you just keep doing that, keep doing that, right? And you make no place or priority for God's word, God's truth, God's community, service in the way of Jesus it is going to change your way of thinking, which will change your way of living, which, as this psalm shows, will change your destiny. Because whatever you consistently put into your life or your mind will take hold of you and will eventually work its way out. And that's why the flourishing man or woman doesn't give way, doesn't give place to this in their life. They are a person of counterformation. So here's what we're going to do. Okay, this is something that is like just so not normal for refuge. But we've done it before and we're going to do it again. But we're going to stop and we're going to do what this book says to do. We're going to meditate. We're going to sit with this truth for a moment. So here's a question. What is the most consistent voice in your life? What are you taking in? What is the channel that you are tuned into? Whose counsel do you listen to? There's probably someone or some corporation, I don't know, something out there. You think, this, this is what I'm aiming for. Man, I see this, and that, that looks good to me. And so maybe I'm, I'm copying that. Maybe it's somebody on Instagram. Maybe it's somebody on Facebook. It's some, you know, like we talked about last week, it's like a Marie Kondo type person. Man, this person just seems to live this simple, peaceful life, and that's what I want. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to follow that. Whose life or story are you being formed by? Let's just sit with that for a minute. Just think about that. You think about David. Now, I know David is not the hero that maybe we thought he was growing up in Sunday school. And some would even go so far as to say that there are no heroes in the Bible. I think that that's incorrect, all besides Jesus. But I think that's incorrect. I think David is someone who we are supposed to relate to. David is a man after God's own heart. He's not a perfect man. He's a man, right? He's a human being who gets it wrong. But I think what the scripture is doing many times is they're holding up these people who are just like us, broken and flawed, but who are after God. And I think that in some way, these are the heroes of the Bible. 
the life examples of the Bible. And we're supposed to take their story and plug it into our story. They're not perfect. They fail, we fail. But you think about all the people in our culture that we looked up to, Beyonce or, you know, like, you know, whoever it might be, you know, um, having one of those moments this morning. But we have our cultural heroes, our cultural icons that we look up to. You know what? The Bible has these as well. It's a different story. It's a different narrative. And God's people are to be formed by that narrative, that story. And so let's pray this prayer together. I know that you sat with this idea for a moment, but let's pray this prayer together out loud. Ready? Lord, expose me the way, for me the ways I listen to wicked counsel or am shaped in my thinking and practice by the ungodly. Help me see how my deepest desires can only be fulfilled in you. Augustine said this. These are words that I think of often. He says, Oh Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, O Lord. Any time that I find myself on this different trajectory, the cultural trajectory, I remind myself of that truth. Lord, you have made me for you. And whatever I'm looking for, I'm not going to find it out there. I'm only going to find it in you. David said this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. And lead me along the path of everlasting life. So here's a little confession I wrote up. thought we could say this and then pray the prayer together and then we'll go back into the psalm. Everybody ready? Let's go. Lord, we have not loved you as we should. Lord, we are often suspicious of you and your will. We doubt the goodness of it. Lord, we have not esteemed your word as we should. Please forgive us. May we, by the power of your spirit at work in us, be able to say with Job, I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. Amen. And here's a prayer from Thomas Kramer. It's one of my favorites. It says, Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. What a prayer to pray, though. This prayer of alignment. I mean, this could be a morning and evening prayer for us, church. Lord, search our hearts. Lord, you know all of our desires. There's nothing hid from you. Cleanse, realign us with your spirit, with your word, so that we will be what you created us to be. What a great prayer to prayer. Okay, now, positively, what this flourishing one does. 
It says that his or her delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. This is an interesting thing. The flourishing man or woman is constantly thinking about God. Now, I think immediately when I say something like that, maybe the religious rebel in you is just like, oh, come on. You know, like, how realistic is that? Anybody heard that book, uh, The Practice of the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence? And even the cover, you're just like, come on. Are you, how, how, how could you possibly do that? Like, you're in the bathroom, like, oh, yes, God is with me. You know, like, you know, you're in the shower, oh, yes, God is with me. But I think that this is a, the, one of the reasons why we do this is because we have this dualistic idea of God. We have this dualistic idea of life, which is that there is the sacred, and that is prayer, that is reading, that is coming to church, that is doing you know kindness and stuff like that. And then there is the secular. That's where I go to work. That's where I play. That's where I drink. That's where I eat. That's where I just kind of have like me time, right? There's, so there's like my life and then there's my life with God. And so we have the sacred secular divide. This is a total lie. There is no such thing as a divide between the sacred and the secular. There is no such thing as dualism, really. All of life is one. And this is what we're saying. What you put into yourself will come out. Your spiritual life, the way you view that, it will radically affect your daily life. And this is something that I've just been marinating on for years, is that this is God's world. He created it. And, I mean, every time we go on a hike as a family, I am just, I think my kids just think I'm a little nuts because I'm like, look at the color of this flower. And I'm like freaking out about it. I'm like, look at that tree. Look at how beautiful it is. Look at the way the branches go. And I'm just like blown away because I see God everywhere. I'm not a pantheist, but I see God everywhere. I see his handiwork. I see his presence. I see his power. I see the beauty that God has poured into creation. And remember a couple months ago, we were looking at just like our own liturgies, the the idea of washing ourselves in the shower or in the bath. There is so much in the Bible about being washed and being cleansed. You really can practice the presence of the Lord everywhere you go and everything you do because this is God's world. He created it. Both the mundane and the exciting, both the spiritual and the secular, the sacred and the secular. God created it all. It's his. And so the flourishing man or woman is constantly thinking about God, his character and person. Remember, we've been talking about this church. First revealed in Exodus 34, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity for thousands to the third and fourth generation, but by no means clearing the guilty or unrepentant. They're thinking about that God. And then the law, the ethics, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge that flow from God's character. That's what this person is thinking about. Remember, they're thinking about what we talked about last week, that God's wisdom, understanding, and knowledge is what formed the Garden of Eden. God's wisdom, understanding, and knowledge is what can build our homes into these places of flourishing, that Scripture is the greatest counsel from the greatest source, and you take it in. It begins to shape you the way you think, speak, and live. 
That's what they're thinking about. Not just like God who sits on a, you know, a throne in heaven and people are just going, holy, 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 holy. And, you know, when we die, we'll just bling on harps, holy, 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 holy. That's dualism. That is not the vision of the Bible. The vision of the Bible is flourishing. It's a new heaven. It's a new earth. It's relationship and relationship dynamics just exploding with life and peace and joy. And that's what the blessed man or woman is thinking about. It's thinking about how God wants to be in our lives how he wants to bring this flourishing in our lives. And what he forbids or what he takes away is because it inhibits our flourishing. Now, if this is the constant voice in your life, if this is what and who you listen to, it's going to change your way of thinking, which will change your way of living, which will change your destiny. Because whatever you consistently put into your life and mind will take hold of you and will eventually work its way out. And church, like I said before, we need counterformation. We need spiritual formation as Jesus followers. And this requires a lot of rehabituation precisely because we build up so many disordered habits over a lifetime. Psalm 1, Romans 12, 1 through 2, show that the counterformation, this transformation comes only by the renewal of our mind through God's word, his wisdom, his understanding, his knowledge. And this is one reason why we always encourage personal reading and studying through scripture. And this is why we give a high priority to the teaching of scripture here at Refuge, because according to the psalmist, the flourishing ones are those that delight in the law and those who think on it day and night. Now, let me, let me just talk for a minute, right? So we talked for a, about just all the messages of the good life that are being thrown at us. Let's talk about God's word that's being thrown at us. And that's really interesting that you use that terminology, things being thrown at you, because this is actually where the root of the word Torah comes from. It means to throw. And the idea in Scripture is that God's law, his word, his truth, is like a javelin or an arrow that is being shot, and the target is our hearts. Scripture, then, is not just another piece of advice to take or leave. It's not among the smorgasbord of our culture. It isn't just one of many truths or one version of the good life among many. It is the truth of the universe being created and meant for mankind's flourishing, aimed directly at your heart, directly at your desires. It isn't just something to learn about. Facts, people, places, things. It is God's truth that is to be contemplated, meditated on, assimilated into our lives, and incarnated into every area of our daily living. It is God's offer of true living and fullness. Now again, I know that there isn't a person in this room that doesn't want the good life. The question is, isn't like, do you want the good life? It's like, it's always how. How, how, how. And what I see in the church is that we are pursuing the good life in a way just like everyone else. 
When we really look at our practices, at our habits, at where we put our money, where we put our time, where we put our resources, and I'm not just dogging on refuge, right? It's here. It's everywhere in the church. We are no different than the culture in our priorities, in our sacrifices. We're no different. And yet that is not what we read in the Scripture And according to scripture, this will not lead us to the good life. And it's no wonder that so many leave the church disillusioned because we do not train them in the word of God. We do not disciple them under the fear of the Lord. And so they come in, they see the version of the good life, and you know what? We just don't do it as good as the world anyway. And so then they go back out into the culture looking for a different well, looking for a different source, looking for a different kind of satisfaction. And all the while, God's word is sitting here untapped. The practices of God's word, the spiritual disciplines, just left. If we want flourishing in the way that the Bible describes, shalom, peace in our relationships, joy in spite of our circumstance, we want meaning and purpose, it comes through a rigid discipline, not not a lifeless discipline, But, but a rigid, a, a serious discipline. I, I think what I see often in the church, actually, I had a friend who criticized evangelicals. and He said, the problem with you and evangelicals is you don't have any liturgy. If you just had liturgy, you wouldn't just be so up and down. And I think he's right. If we just had the daily practices and we saw these as life-giving, as formative, as things that would really bring flourishing and bring goodness, then we would do them, but we don't. Instead, we sell events. Come and see and just experience and experience and experience rather than go and sit under this truth. Let it examine your life. Sit with the tension. And see what God will say to you. How many of us are guilty of that? That we just want the answer. We just want it so we can, again, plug and play it into our lives. This does not lead to the flourishing that the scripture envisions. Now, I am totally out of time, but... We're going to do something real quick. Somehow I'm going to bring it all together and make this work. Okay, a couple things as we close. Here's the thing that you have to realize about the law of God. This is absolutely vital. God's law was given to the Jews only after he had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. The Bible's instruction is not a way that we find God. God came looking for us. It's not a way that we fix our lives. God offers to fix our lives 
through the power of Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit. But the law of God, meditating, prayer, is the way that we get God's word from our heads to our hearts. And it's, it's, it's absolutely vital. I would say just as vital as the cross, just as vital as being filled with the Spirit, is that we walk now in the newness of life, that we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God that works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. And so just in the same way that the Jews understood that it was God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and so then God says, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall, and you shall. God's Torah is first a record of his faithful love before it is instruction to be obeyed. And how much more for us, Right? What we receive in Scripture is given to us in light of the cross, in in light of God's greatest act of deliverance, God's greatest act of love and mercy, of righteousness and justice. We know God's intentions for us. He wants flourishing so much for us that he came and paid the debt of sin that we owe. That's how much God wants flourishing for us. That he allowed sin to crush him. So that we could experience the presence and the garden of God. And so let's do do this as we close out our time. Let's take a moment to think upon the grace of God displayed for us in the cross. Because this is where Our desires will really, I think, be kick-started. New desires will be kick-started when we see the great love of God displayed in the cross. We recognize that we have a Father in heaven who desperately loves us and wills our good. When we get that vision of, of God and who he is and what he's done, it kick-starts these new desires. And then, of course, we need to feed those desires. We need to go to our Father. We need to cultivate a relationship with him. But the cross is where it all begins, the greatest display of God's love for us. So let's reflect on this. Let's think about who we were when God called us by grace into his salvation. Or think about who you are even right now, your struggles, your inconsistencies, your failures. And listen to this, in spite of all of that, God, your Father, wants fullness for you. He wants richness for your life. In spite of all that, in spite of you, in spite of all the terrible things about you, in spite of all the bad habits that you have, you know, taken upon yourself in your life, all the ways that you reflect the world, all of that, God sees right through all of that, and he still wants flourishing for your life, and he offers that to you. Let's take a moment and imagine what your life would look like in all of its fullness. What would it look like for your life to flourish? What would it look like to have peace? To have driving hope? To have overflowing love? 
to just be a person that's not moved by you know the arrogance of others the cynicism of others the you know when people fly off the handle you're just not moved by these things you just have a peace overflowing love kindness what would it look like to have a life without shame without fear without anger without brokenness, without frustration and regret. Because that is what God our Father wants for our lives. He wants us to be healed. He wants us to be whole. Here's a scripture. For while we were still weak and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. These people right here. Who the wicked, the way of sinners, the ungodly. That's who Christ died for. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, broken, rebellious, twisted inside, even when we were in that, in that state, and even now, Christ died for us. Listen to this. This is from Brennan Manning. It says, Do you believe that the God of Jesus loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness? Beyond fidelity and infidelity? That he loves you in the morning sun and in the evening rain? He loves you when your intellect denies it, your emotions refuse it, your whole being rejects it. Do you believe that God loves without condition or reservation and loves you this moment as you are and not as you should be? How much does God love the whole world? Enough to give his one and only son. That's how much he loves us. Every single one of us. And yet, like the hymn says, we're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God who loves us. We skip down to Psalm 103. Let's read this together. Wait for it. All right. Well, if you have a Bible, Psalm 103. Starting in verse 1, it says, Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart or my whole person, I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. That's it right there. May I never forget the good things that he does for me. If I remembered the good things that God does for me, gosh, what would my life look like? I would go under his word. I would go under his counsel. I would go to him. I would sit with his word. I would examine my life under it. But we forget. May I never forget the good things he does for me. 
He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. May I never forget the good things he does for me. Now the last thing, and we'll close, promise. The result of biblical meditation, this is what it envisions. The person that delights in God's word the person who takes it in day and night, examines their life under it, it is the number one source of their life. It says that they are like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in all that they do, they prosper. So regardless of life's varied experience, The tree always shows signs of life and bears fruit in the correct seasons of life. And so here is flourishing in biblical terms. To be rooted. Never moved no matter the situation. Fruitful in all the right places and seasons. Never lacking, never drying up. Always prospering, fulfilled and at peace in every sense of the word. Regardless of life's varied experience, the tree always shows signs of life and bears fruit in the correct seasons of life. You know, as I'm reading this, you guys, I cannot help but think of Rick and Christina. And Grace and I, when we were in Tennessee with them in Christina's last month, what we recognized was that Rick and Christina were bearing this. They were bearing the fruit of abiding in God's word continually. Did they always get it right? No. Was their marriage rough at times? Absolutely. Was parenting hard? Yes. Did they have trials? Yes. But they were not moved. And there was this moment where, you know, Rick, he like picks Christina up because she can't even walk downstairs and he carries her in his arms out to the car, puts her in the car. He's like prepared this whole day for her. And I was like, that's a life goal right there. That is flourishing right there. But the mistake is to think that Rick and Christina just got there somehow, some way. Like, they just flowed downstream and just figured it out. No, it was calculated. It was purposeful. They abided in God's word. They meditated on it day and night. Christina was someone who delighted in God's word and his truth. And in her last days, in her biggest trial, it showed she produced this kind of fruit. She didn't wither. Faithful till the end. And that is what every single one of us want. And that is what our culture really wants. That's what we desire. In old age, to still bear fruit, to still have a meaningful, purposeful life. No matter what's happened to us. But it will not just happen to you. Therefore, to know how to meditate on and delight in God's word, the Bible is the secret to a relationship with God and to life itself, to flourishing and the good life. And as I said before, it is through meditation and prayer that we assimilate the truth of God to our daily lives. 
which is how God makes us more like him, how he makes us mature human beings, how we reflect the image of God when we hear the word and obey. That's one word in Hebrew, it's Shema, hear and obey Israel. That's when it begins to change us. When we take it in in this way. Let's close in prayer. I'm not sure if my closing prayer is on the screen, but I wrote this prayer. Here it is, closing prayer. Why don't you just close your eyes and just listen. And if, if this is you, just agree. Even if that's out loud, you want to say amen, me too, whatever it might be. Here it is. Great gardener, Yahweh, you offer to train us in your wisdom and your understanding and knowledge so that our lives will be these many gardens, these microcosms of Eden. And yet, Lord, we have rebelled and failed again and again to believe you, to obey you. And we've sown unfaithfulness. We've failed opportunities to love people, to serve people, to show your righteousness and to show your justice in our city, in our relationships. And Lord, we've tried to forge our own paths to the good life. We've tried to build Eden with worldly wisdom and virtues. And so Lord, forgive us and restore us again. Bring us back to your wisdom. Even now, Lord, we want to humble ourselves before you, receiving your forgiveness, coming under your discipleship. And as we do that, Lord, we pray that your words would be cherished by us in order that we might become what you created and purchased us by your blood to be, a new and flourishing humanity in covenant partnership with you. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our King. Amen.